You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. World Talk Radio. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. When American troops entered Paris in 1944, they were greeted as liberators. But what happens when American troops enter a city where the locals do not want them? It's a question on everyone's mind today, and it was a question in 1862 when Union troops occupied Athens, Alabama. Join us for a discussion of that incident with the co-author of From Conciliation to Conquest, The Sack of Athens, and the court-martial of Colonel John B. Turchin. That co-author is George C. Bradley, and we'll talk with him in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R dot com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you today with the worst voice in the history of radio, uh, suffering from bronchitis and other things in the year 2007. It's a beautiful spring day here in Greenville, North Carolina. And I'm coming to you today not from Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters, which is my office on campus of East Carolina University, but instead from the home office, excuse me, on Oxford Road. So um, I don't even have to say the usual legal excuses because I'm not using the office equipment or coming to you from campus or in any way implying that I have anything to do today with East Carolina University, home of the Pirates. Brief timeout. <coughs> Trying to get the voice a little bit better there. Um, well, it has been a uh, challenging week, week two in the new era of Civil War talk radio. One more timeout. <coughs> There's no cough button here on the home phone, so I apologize for that. Uh, this is week two of the the new uh, talk radio format in which uh, uh, the old website has disappeared. We have a new website. <clears throat> we have new uh, uh, with with a new address unknown to to anyone more or less, but you can trace it down uh, through Google <clears throat> in one way or another.
Uh, this is, is my voice uh, has been used for lecturing this week. My students have objected, but they have to sit there. And I'm guessing the listeners at this point, if there are any left, have run screaming from the room. I apologize to those who are sticking it out. <clears throat> and I apologize to our guests who will be with us in just a moment. But this is what uh, allergies and over uh, stress and other things will do. <clears throat> anyway, the uh, the new uh, World Talk Radio situation is that we have a new website. Uh, we've lost uh, a lot of the old materials. Hopefully some will come back. But... Uh, in, in the words of uh, uh, Kent, the uh, the TV guy on The Simpsons, I, for one, welcome our new insect overlords and uh, <clears throat> want to remind them that I can be helpful in pointing out, uh, uh, rounding up others to help toil in their, uh, uh, in their plan for world domination. Well, enough uh, silliness. Let's move on. I'm going to introduce our author, and ideally he will talk for the next 55 minutes uh, without stopping, so you don't have to listen to me anymore today. The subject is the the conquest and, and sack of Athens, Alabama, 1862, uh, in which uh, Union troops occupied a town, treated its civilians in a certain fashion. It became a bit of a cause celeb, the Union general in charge was eventually both court-martialed and promoted, and it, it's an event that has echoes in our contemporary situation. So let's move right on to that. Uh, George, are you with us today? I am. Good, good afternoon, Jerry. Thank, thank you. I am really sorry to be presenting this, this hideous sound uh, of my voice today. Well, you, you, the man who connected me up with you said I sounded a lot like you, so I don't I hope that doesn't mean he thinks I have allergies, too. No, you, you sound fine and, and uh, can forge ahead with this. Um, I, I understand you are a lawyer in real life? I uh, was a lawyer, if one can put that in a past tense. Uh, I uh, graduated from Cornell University uh, with a degree in history, uh, concentrating on the history of the American West under a fellow named Paul Gates, who was, who was a, a good frontier theory guy kind of guy. And then I uh, went to Albany Law School, graduated from there uh, a while back, uh, practiced law in a small upstate New York firm for seven years. Then uh, I got into business, first in the oil business and, and then in the timber business. Now, I, I practiced law for about three years before I had enough. What, what made you move on? Well, uh, that just was never where my heart was. You know, the, the uh, I used to tell my friends I had a the secret to a successful and happy law practice was that all my clients were right and they could afford me. Unfortunately, that usually wasn't the comedy. One each had one of the two. <laughs> but I, I can relate to that. <laughs> and uh, so I, I got into you know the, the oil business was an old. And I mean old, uh, fifth-generation family-owned business. And I got into that, but uh, uh, five generations was enough, and we dissolved that company. And, and I got in the timber business after that. And then after a while, decided, you know, uh, came face-to-face with being 40, and what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And what I'd always wanted to do deep down was, was history. 
and uh, uh, so we changed gears so that although I, I can't say I make a living at it, I sure spend a lot of time doing it. And that led us to move from upstate New York down here to where I live in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, as a good central place to to do historical research and things. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, you have the Army uh, or College. Uh, oh yeah, the Army War College Library is in the Military History Institute. Are just great things to have nearby. But I went to two hours of the National Archives in D.C. So uh, that's that's uh, also a nice nice thing to have around. So what uh, got you interested in the story of, of uh, John Turchin? Uh, my co-author, Dick Dowling. <clears throat> Dick uh, was a, a, a neat guy. He uh, looked and sounded a lot like Arnold Stang. If anybody remembers Arnold from 1950s TV, just kind of a church mouse kind of a guy. But he was a, Dick was a, went to Harvard for his undergraduate work, uh, graduated from Yale Law. He uh, was a clerk for Judge Harry Blackman when Judge Blackman was sitting on the Supreme Court of North Dakota. Uh, And Dick kind of hit the same spot I did a little earlier than I did. Decided to uh, move to Central PA uh, for two reasons. One, to be near his wife's family, and the other was to uh, work on a book about Sherman. And in, in researching the history development of Sherman's thinking on how to make war, he came across uh, Colonel Turchin and decided Turchin would probably be the better first book to do. And he would come to me and hand me chapters that he was working on, and I had never heard of Turchin before he did that. And then Dick got sick uh, with cancer and... and, uh, I volunteered to help him try and complete it while he was still with us and uh, failed to do that. We got close, but not quite before Dick was taken. And uh, then I really got heavy into, into, into Turchin and uh, tried to make make his story uh, get depressed. So uh, <clears throat> what percentage of, of the book is yours and what was your co-author's? Well, when I started the third rewrite, I put my name first. <laughs> Dick had a draft about 75% finished when I stepped in. But uh, to tell the truth, there's not a much... Well, a lot of that has been substantially altered. We, I finished his version of the book, which he had researched for a lot of before Mark Grimsley came out with The Hard Hand of War. And had he had that as a, as a guide and as a help, I think Dick's initial draft would have been a lot different. But uh, that wasn't the case, and we needed to like do a lot of research and a lot of working around to uh, take into account the points that uh, that Mark makes in his book and put uh, Colonel Turchin a little more in perspective. Uh, it was Dick's you know, argument that Turchin was really the agent by which the Lincoln administration told the Army we're changing things around. And, and that's not so. Uh, Turchin rode the wave at the right time, but uh, he wasn't the creator of that wave uh, by any means. Well, let's talk about what uh, what that wave consisted of. What happened? Uh, uh, well, well, maybe we can start with Turchin first. Uh, who was he? Where did he come from? 
Well, he he came from from near Rostov in in, in Russia. His father was a, a military man, although not not of any particularly high rank. Uh, he started his military education when I think when he was fourteen, which would have been in eighteen thirty six or so. He uh, completed it, went on, got a, got a, started his army career. Uh, I think. I, don't, I guess he'd made captain before the Crimean War broke out, made colonel by the time it ended, and was doing things like planning uh, coronation uh, celebrations and things for the for the imperial government before uh, the end of the Crimean War in, in 1856. And what happens in 1856, I think it's more than coincidence. We don't have good documentation on it. I think it's... It's more than coincident that in that year, uh, George McClellan and a delegation of uh, uh, Alfred Mordecai and, and uh, a fellow named Delafield, they, they went to observe the Imperial Army uh, at the end of the Crimean War. And Turchin at that time uh, developed uh, this... Uh, Notion, you know, he wanted uh, liberty. He wanted to seek. Uh, he imbibed democratic notions, is I think the way he put it. Uh, he got married to a, a Polish woman who apparently thought very much the same way he did, and they emigrated to the United States shortly thereafter. As a Russian immigrant, and there weren't a lot of Russian immigrants in those days, he uh, uh, had had trouble establishing himself. Uh, he was a trained engineer, but he got a job at the Coast Survey in Philadelphia and then wasn't paid very much for doing that, headed west and struggled in, in small towns in Illinois for a little while and then went to Chicago and started working for the Illinois Central. And there he got to know people, and especially, uh, most importantly, well, a lot of influential people, everybody from William Ogden, the first mayor, on down through the... Uh, the editors and owners of the Chicago Tribune. They became his mentors, his patrons, uh, the people who, who saw promise in him. And when the war breaks out, uh, when the 19th Regiment's being formed by around a core group of, of Chicago boys, uh, they put his name forward as a man who ought to lead it, and he is selected. Now, the uh, the 19th Illinois that you mentioned... Uh, you, you talk quite a bit in the book about the, the the motives of these volunteers, where they come from, and what they're what they're here to do. Well, I think uh, I think yeah, that's I think one of the interesting questions I, I pose that question in the introduction, and actually it's a topic I, I would like to do further research on, maybe maybe a separate book on it. But you have the question, you know, number one, what does the government hope to accomplish by raising the army to put down the rebellion? What policies are they going to follow? Which initially is the conciliatory policy. Then you have a separate question of what is it these boys volunteer to do? And in 1861, you know, the the, the community uh, thought, the community uh, expressions of what we ought to do now are anything but conciliatory. The, the newspapers, you know, from Philadelphia to Chicago are saying these people in the South, uh, the rebels, those who have seceded, 
are a bunch of traitors. They've committed treason. They, one of them said that, you know, committed the worst crime possible, the murder of a nation. And the uh, general gist of things is, let's go down there and get even. Let's retaliate. Uh, one of the flags of uh, one of the companies that ends up in the 19th Illinois says that. It said, you know, uh, retaliation, no mercy for traitors. So you get, you know, the, you get to asking, what's what's the community standard here? What is it these boys think the people back home want to do? And and you point out the newspapers uh, inflame that spirit. Yes, yeah. Oh, the, the Chicago Tribune is just whipping it, but their circulation is growing. I mean, <laughs> obviously this rings true with a lot of people. Uh, is my conclusion. And and you you. What, what I've, I've been looking for for a long time, Jerry, is a letter from a Union soldier, uh, say, from who had been involved in Sherman's March to the Sea, who says, I feel bad about that. And I don't, I have yet to find that letter. You know, everybody seems to think, or at least they leave either, either silent or are saying, well, you know, that wasn't such a bad thing. And I, I get the, you know, certainly you know, when you look at Turchin's reception when he returns to Chicago after these events in 1862, and he's given a ticker tape parade, you know, and everybody knows what's happened. That's certainly as clear an expression of community sentiment as is, are the uh, editorials in the papers at the start of the war. So we've got a sense at the beginning of the war you've got this general from Russia, uh, or officer from Russia. Sure. Yep. Mm-hmm. And you've got uh, a community sentiment that calls for for uh, the no mercy for traitors. Um, <clears throat> well, what we'll do here is stop a minute, take a break. I will consume some powerful medicines. <laughs> and we'll come back in just a minute and talk more with George C. Bradley about Colonel General Basil Turchin and the Sack of Athens in 1862. We'll be back in just a minute on Civil War Talk Radio. small business? Well, then you know how tough it can be. You know, marketing, finding new customers, and especially just staying focused on the day-to-day details of running your business. Well, even though my business was doing okay, it wasn't where I knew it could be. I was getting a bit discouraged. Then I heard about this little book called Growing Your Business by Mark LeBlanc. Wow, I still can't figure out how such a small book could make such a big difference in my business. It only took about an hour to read, and the things I learned, well, all I can say is I'll be using Mark's ideas for a long time to come. Why? Because they work. I learned how to really focus on what I need to do to attract more customers and how to be more successful by creating a plan for generating more business. I guess that's why Mark named his website smallbusinesssuccess.com. 
Clever, huh? Small business success. That's it. If you want to be more successful with your business, and who doesn't, you should check out Mark LeBlanc's website at smallbusinesssuccess.com. You'll find Mark's books and lots of other resources for growing your business. smallbusinesssuccess.com World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Small War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the edge of bronchitis uh, with a discussion today of the sack of Athens, Alabama, by Union troops in May of 1862, and the important ramifications of that otherwise obscure event. Our guest is an author uh, of a co-author of a book on that subject. The book is called "From Conciliation to Conquest," and we're talking with George C. Bradley. Well, George, uh, in our first segment, we talked about uh, Colonel Turchin, who led the 19th Illinois. Uh, we talked about the regiment itself. What were they doing in Alabama in 1862? How did they get to Athens, and, and what happened when they got there? Well, the uh, Don Carlos Buell was was in command of, of the Army of Ohio at that time, of which they were a part. And the, uh, Turchin, because of seniority of his commission as a colonel, had ended up running a brigade of, of four regiments and had been attached to uh, a division led by Ormsby, McKnight, and Mitchell, who was a West Point grad uh, uh, who had left the Army to uh, pursue science and had become a, a very well-known astronomer in the United States. Uh, Buell moved from Bowling Green, well, first moved on Bowling Green, Kentucky, which uh, Albert Johnson abandoned uh, rather than stand and try to stand and protect. Uh, from Bowling Green, they then moved south along the rail line to Nashville as the capital uh, of Tennessee, and that also uh, was surrendered uh, to the Union Army without a fight. On, a, on a reaching Nashville, Buell uh, was placed under the command of Henry Halleck and was ordered to join Grant. Uh, at uh, Pittsburgh Landing. He took uh, most of his army with him, but he left uh, Mitchell with an independent command and with a directive to move south into Alabama, really to Decatur in Huntsville, to sever the uh, uh, Memphis and Charleston Railroad, which was the longest railroad in the south. And it was a strategic move to you know to cut off uh, logistical support for, for Johnson's army in closer to the Mississippi. Uh, that move by uh, uh, Mitchell's division was unopposed militarily. And they found themselves you know, in April of 1862 in Alabama. And it is here that the Lincoln uh, uh, conciliatory policy is essentially put to the test because you have men, Union Army volunteers in the South, uh, not... Uh, they're fighting any active, uh, uniformed, uh, organized opponents, but rather they're as uh, a police force, essentially. And they're there yeah. in Nashville on, I think it's February 26th. Buell had finally put into effect orders which complied with the Lincoln administration's conciliatory policies and directives saying we're, we're, we're coming here to restore order, to restore the, restore the rule of law, 
to protect uh, the people who live here, to protect their property, which is a code way of saying, we'll keep the slaves on the plantation, and and we'll protect you know their rights as citizens of the United States. Now, the thinking behind this is that if, if the soldiers are conciliatory, the rebels will, will give up the rebellion. That's correct. Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's like, I think, you know, the whole thinking of calling out militia at the start of the war, the whole thinking of really the first six months of the war, certainly, is that it's more akin to putting down a riot than it is to uh, fighting a war against a, an organized entity. And what your hope is that, yeah, you face the, the mob, uh, you, you, you scare them, you get them to go home, you're nice to the people at home, let them know that peace and law and order is here and they can walk the streets again and everybody will be happy and that's the end of it. But of course, uh, that is based on the assumption that the people who are at home are looking forward to that. And that the test comes, uh, one of the first tests for the Union Army comes when uh, they arrive here in Alabama to uh, see how the locals feel. And how do they feel? That, that's an interesting thing. Uh, Athens itself was a center, to the extent there could be a center, of Union sentiment in Alabama. The last and probably one of the few newspapers in the state, which took a pro-Union stand, uh, was based in Athens, but it went out of business under public pressure, I think January of 1861. Uh, the locals claimed to be the last ones to lower the, the stars and stripes from the courthouse. And uh, General Mitchell thought that when he sent a garrison to uh, occupy Athens that probably they'd bring the fag flag right back out and put it back up. And the flag existed. It was in the mayor's drawer, but it didn't go back up uh, for uh, for whatever reason. You know, th- on their advance to Athens... Uh, it was kind of like swimming, swimming through pockets of warm water here and there in a, in a generally cold stream. They'd, uh, the division would arrive at one community, and everyone would just look down at the ground and try to ignore them or, or yell insults. And they arrived at, I think, Shelbyville, Tennessee, and out come all the Union flags. It's, you know, it's, it's a town that's actually based, basically occupied by uh, uh, textile workers who moved down from, from New England. And the saviors here, you know, they do get, they do react as uh, the administration hopes. They're they're welcoming uh, the return of the Union Army and, and, and uh, of the United States government. Athens itself, though, you know, it's I think the locals basically, you know, they want to get along. They want to go along to get along. And they don't want to make trouble for themselves. <coughs> but on the other hand, most of the boys in town have volunteered for various Confederate units. And the, the, the home folks are sending them supplies and not arguing with that that was a, a bad decision on their part. So when uh, when Church's men arrive, uh, what, what happens in Athens? Do they, do they encounter uh, opposition, armed opposition? No. Uh, the, you know, the first move is there's the... The brigade is based at, at Huntsville. And General Mitchell says, well, we need to 
garrison Athens. It sits on the railroad that leads south to Nashville. So we'll garrison it, and we'll send the 18th Ohio Regiment up there to, to do that. And they arrive. Uh, they treat the locals generally politely. The, the locals treat them generally politely. There's, there don't appear to be any complaints on either side. Actually, some of the people say that, gee, they were surprised at how well-behaved the men of the 18th Ohio were. Uh, they do go around to local farms uh, trying to augment their their supplies. Uh, generally speaking, pay for it. Uh, sometimes they're not even, you know, if it's just a little milk they want, they're, they're given the milk by the, by the farmers. So uh, they're not, not, uh, everything seems to be going along smooth enough. Then uh, a Confederate cavalry detachment arrives. The 18th Ohio has never been in an armed combat situation before. Their colonel has never been. He kind of panics, uh, and that doesn't help the men calm down any. And they wildly exaggerate the, the, uh, the opposition. They're actually, the 600 of them are counting maybe two or 300 Confederate troopers. Uh, that number gets uh, multiplied uh, six or seven-fold. And the colonel says, well, the, the, the wiser step here is to get out of town. And as they're getting out of town, it's obvious that a lot of the townspeople will let them know they're glad to see them go. Uh, you know, it, at the very least, cheering the fact they're going, perhaps yelling some insults, uh, probably not firing at them from windows and houses and things, although rumors to that effect uh, do start. And in, in the panic of the Union troops as, as they flee town, uh, those sorts of reports uh, get made and get exaggerated. So when the, uh, well, well, let's get to the actual sack of Athens, then. Uh, it, it sounds like Union troops had moved in, burned the place to the ground, and killed all the inhabitants. Yeah, yeah, you'd think from the way Jeff Davis talked about it, that's what happened. But what what does happen? <laughs> uh, well, as the 18th Ohio is running out of town, gets maybe five miles out of town, they run into a train carrying Ormsby McKnight Mitchell, their division commander. And he starts hearing these reports of the uh, atrocious behavior of the local citizens. And says, uh, he puts the, literally puts the uh, locomotive in reverse and backs up to Huntsville and organizes a, a relief expedition, essentially, and tells Turchin to take two regiments, which he then augments with an artillery battery and some cavalry and, and builds it up pretty well, and go back and retake the town. And that is organized later that day of May 1st, 1862. And that night they march three-quarters of the way there. And then early in the morning, uh, Turchin organizes an advance into the town with, with two of the regiments, uh, and, well, and, and portions of the 18th. Uh, there's the 19th uh, Illinois, the 37th Indiana, and, and a, a good chunk of the 18th Ohio comes back. They march into town uh, unopposed. The Confederate cavalry received a nice banquet meal from, from the locals the night of May 1st, and and then left. Uh, they're unopposed. They march in. The two regiments st 
stack arms in the middle of town, which is, this is the, the county seat, so they're, they're stacking their arms around the, the county courthouse, and they proceed to ransack the town. Now, there is some justification for this. They're searching for arms because of the report that people have been firing out of the houses. And they're searching for the knapsacks and other belongings of the 18th Ohio, which had been left in town or at the fairgrounds just outside of town uh, when they took off because they didn't have wagons to wagons or the time to throw the stuff in. So there is some justification for the initial search of homes, which had been, which was uh, ordered, but that very quickly, uh, almost immediately. Uh, disintegrates into a general ransacking of the downtown business district where stores are cleaned out, uh, uh, dry goods stores, uh, 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 drug stores, especially because of the liquor that's uh, alcohol that's contained in medicines then. Uh, men are parading around wearing women's dresses and civilian clothes, things they've taken from the haberdashers and, and uh, uh, obviously well lubricated with whatever liquor they found and, and make make quite a scene. They, they break into safes. They, they, they get sledgehammers out and are stealing Confederate money and, and, and notes from, from safes in the stores. And, and uh, they do enter some homes, uh, demand to be fed, make uh, some messes in homes, uh, you know, dropping jars of jam and, and staining rugs and that sort of behavior. Uh, they don't hurt anybody. They don't, you know, on May 2nd, they don't, there are no complaints of uh, rapes. There are no complaints of shootings of, of, of male civilians or any, any acts of violence of that sort. There is a, a woman who had been suffering through a very difficult pregnancy, and her husband runs off to join the Confederate cavalry who had come to town, leaving her there in dire straits, and, and the Union, uh, I don't know if it's Church himself, but some of the Union troops end up very closely watching her home uh, to see if they can catch the guy. And he comes back to look out for his wife, which he doesn't do, and she she miscarries as, as a, with all the stress and strain going on. But that's the closest there is to any violence in the town. Uh, then, uh, you know, the next day, there are... Uh, uh, a few miscreants from the 37th Indiana who seven miles outside of town end up robbing a, a farm and raping a, a slave girl there. And her her owner is incensed by this and and comes into town to lodge a complaint, recognizes the, the perpetrator, and Turchin has him promptly arrested, placed in the irons, and sent back to Huntsville with the clink. Uh, but that's the only act of personal violence of the whole time. And not a single building is set on fire. There isn't any other than knocking in a few doors and windows. The, the, the town's intact at the end of these events. So so the sack of Athens <coughs> turns out to be the dropping of a jelly jar on a nice carpet. Uh, well, it, it I, multiplied uh, maybe several dozen times. Yeah, and uh, no doubt the safes were robbed. And <coughs> there, there, there's a Living robbed in the Confederate money, which is not yes, the Confederate money, which not is very not. useful. <laughs> and I, they stole something like twenty thousand dollars worth of promissory notes held in one of the safes, and they evidently realized that was boys. If the Confederate money wasn't worth much, the notes of Confederates 
uh, are going to be worth even less to, to them at least. So they, they returned most of those hmm. uh, to to the, uh, the shopkeeper. But uh, uh, you know, it's, it's this is not the rape of Nan King. So how does this get uh, how does this get into the news? How, how does how does how do we go from this step from uh, what sounds like a house to house search gone a little bit awry, but not nobody's hurt, nothing major is damaged, no buildings destroyed, no people well, injured. How do we get from there to the legendary sack of Athens? Well, the the first step is the fact that the, living in the town is a Lincoln appointed federal judge named George Lane, who had been somewhat of a power in, in Alabama politics in years before this and had been growingly increasingly had been become a suspicious character because of his ties to the Lincoln administration but uh, he's a federal judge and the people start coming to him for help you know that uh, obviously a lot of them have complaints about the property damage done and some of it's you know some of it's related to the to the ransacking the stores some of it's Related to the artillery units setting up positions within within the community and knocking down fences and tearing up gardens and things to do that, and some of it has to do with where where the regimental camps are established and so on, or, or foodstuffs that are taken. But anyway, they they start coming in in a pretty long line to Judge Lane, and Judge Lane is a politician as well as a judge, and he, and he wants to try and keep. You know, some semblance of, of stature within the community, and he starts compiling these complaints. Everybody, I think, knows something. Even you know, before the troops went into town, General Mitchell had said, "Well, damn it, we'll turn this place into a grease spot. You know, we're good even with them for running our guys out of there." And of course, that isn't what happens. And and, and George, we're going to take a break here again. Okay. Uh, we'll come back and find out what, what exactly, well, we know what did happen. We'll find out how people heard about it sure and what the consequences were for those involved. We'll do that when we come back in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. the appropriate consequences for a general whose troops ransack a town? Should he be dismissed from the service? Should he be promoted to a higher rank? Or should it be both? That's what happened to John Turchin. We'll find out how when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. It's the one level playing field in business, the Internet. It's where an artisan working out of a small shop can look bigger than a multinational corporation. But to achieve this level of visibility, your company's website needs a developer who knows the net and how to make it work. Your company needs Apsio. Apsio's success comes from producing websites that reflect the attitudes and uniqueness of their respective organizations. Make a great first impression on the web. Choose Apsio, A-P-S-Y-O. For more info, visit www.apsio.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk.
And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Today, talking with George C. Bradley about the conquest of Athens, Alabama in 1862 and the consequences of that event. In our last segment, we talked about what happened, the uh, ransacking of the town, uh, a relatively mild event in physical terms, a few doors broken in, but no buildings burned, no people injured, not a whole lot stolen. But afterwards, uh, the consequences uh, grew rather substantially. Uh, claims were pressed against the federal government, and uh, the the commander uh, is to be held responsible. Apparently, what uh, what what happened to General Church or Colonel Church in, uh, after this event? Well, uh, we were talking about Judge Lane, the, the federal appointed judge. He ended up collecting a pile of claims, which was uh, more than fifty thousand dollars. And I think coinciding with that is the realization by both Turchin and General Mitchell that all those the events weren't terribly awful in terms of you know, what what could have happened, what could have happened to the civilian population or, the, or burning down the town. Uh, it was quite clearly against orders. You know, Buell, General Buell had issued orders 13A saying, you know, this is exactly the thing we don't do. We will protect property. We're not going to take property. We're not going to intimidate citizens. And although there wasn't any harm, there certainly was a lot of intimidation by the lower-line soldiers. And so they, they both, um, Mitchell, then Turchin, both issue repeated orders for the next three or four days saying, don't do this. You know, you'll be held responsible, which is exactly what Buell's order says to his division and brigade command. You'll be held responsible if these events occur, and is essentially it stops. But two months later, and towards the end of June, Don Carlos Buell himself rides into town, and Judge Lane meets him and presents him with a fifty thousand dollar bill. And Buell says, "Well." I think he had been looking for a reason to, to jump on church, and I think he heard about these things before, uh, both in Kentucky when the, when the army was based there, and uh, perhaps uh, heard of Turchin's reputation for carrying on these sorts of operations in Missouri at the opening of the war. But anyway, he's, he seems primed to be looking for a reason to get rid of Turchin, and this uh, both gives him an avenue to get rid of Turchin and to really stamp down, say, we have this policy in place. It's a you know, a policy endorsed by the Lincoln, or put forward by the Lincoln administration, and I agree with it. And we're going to enforce it, and we'll start by court-martialing Colonel Turchin and getting him out of here and getting things back in order. So, Turchin's to be court-martialed. Um, what, what does the court-martial determine? Well, he was he was court-martialed on three three basic. Uh, lines of attack uh, in the indictment. The indictment charged him with neglect of duty for allowing the pillaging to happen. Uh, it charged him with uh, failure to take adequate steps to restrain his men, and I think that could be interpreted as a, historically a failure to take adequate steps, you know, throughout the time you had been in command, and therefore you end up with uncontrolled behavior such as the rape of the slave girl. The second charge was conduct unbecoming an officer, you know, which is basically based on the same facts and same same events, but the uh, thing that 
the reason that charge is placed is because it is results in automatic dismissal if the officer is found uh, to be guilty of it. And the third thing he was charged with was failure to obey orders, both orders 13A against against uh, pillaging and enforcing conciliation, and general order number four of the Army, which forbade officers' wives uh, coming down to camp and staying with them, which uh, uh, Turchin pled guilty to because uh, Mrs. Turchin was there. So it was Mrs. Mitchell. It wasn't uh, <laughs> everyone seemed to can't argue with that, right? Yeah. And so, uh, oh, go ahead. No, no, you go. Well, Tom, uh, so, so what's the verdict on, on the, the other charges? Well, uh, he is uh, convicted. Uh, they have a good long trial. And one of the main issues, and I think it's an interesting one in retrospect, is. Uh, well, one of the one of the main problems in, in bringing charges against the uh, private who raped the slave girls principally had to be based on the testimony of the slave, and that was a thorny legal issue. Could could a black person testify under oath? Uh, of course, in the South, that wasn't something you wanted to allow to happen. Similarly, the people who were testifying against Turchin, the store owners, the shop owners in town, refused to take the oath of allegiance to the United States. So do you convict an officer based on testimony of someone who won't say you're on their side or that they're on your side? And the ruling of the court is, yeah, you don't have to take the oath of office. You do have to swear you're telling the truth, but that's all the farther we'll make you go. And, and that gets a big play in the press. That uh, you know, heard. Well, I mean, that's hard to imagine. If, if One of the underlying texts, uh, subtext throughout this entire book is the thought of how troops behave in a in a hostile civil civilian environment, right? And certainly, uh, as we're talking here in the spring of 2007, uh, American troops are in Baghdad dealing with a hostile civilian environment in other parts of Iraq. <clears throat> and if there were to be a trial of American troops today for some uh, alleged atrocity, the idea that uh, individuals who are identified with um, with the insurgency, would be allowed to testify against American troops without denying that they were on the other side uh, is unthinkable. Yeah, you know that's a real hard one. But again, you have the official Lincoln policy still at this point in time. Although it's this is now we're into July of eighteen sixty-two, so I guess it's a good question of what policy is in place right then, because this is when it changes. But up until then, certainly. The attitude has been the people of the South continue to be citizens of the United States. And if we're not going to ask someone from Massachusetts to uh, give additional proof of loyalty before testifying in a trial, why should we do that for a person who lives in Alabama? Uh, obviously, as you, as you point out, uh, there are big differences, but the official policy is you know, these people are citizens of the United States. They're treated as people in the United States uh, as citizens and have all the rights pertinent there, too. And it gets thorny, and it is certainly the feeling of the public as expressed through the newspapers and through the demonstrations that occur when when Turchin gets home that, yeah, this sucks. <laughs> Traitors shouldn't be allowed to testify against people who have volunteered for the service of the United States to to preserve the country. You know, I think a much stronger argument than than uh, one would have in, in even uh, with uh, allowing an Al Qaeda person to testify at a trial against an officer. That, uh, you know, it, 
But they do allow the testimony, yes, and the result is Turchin is convicted. The result is Turchin is convicted. However, you know, it's a fascinating court-martial board uh, presided over by James A. Garfield, the, the future president. At the end of the trial, you know, uh, Garfield, who is pretty hard-nosed about it, it's quite obvious, uh, thanks to Garfield's uh, diary and letters, that everybody knows what happened before the trial starts. Everybody knows the orders have been violated. Everybody knows that they're going to have to convict him. And they do. But he wins over every member of the court save one, just one old line colonel who says, well, you know, orders are orders, and he didn't obey them and go away. Uh, but everybody else says, you know, Turchin is a great guy. They love this guy. And they forward the conviction to Buell with the recommendation that leniency uh, be afforded this man, and, you know, they're sure it won't happen again. And Buell says, bah, humbug, I've got the guy. Every, he's a great example of, of what shouldn't be done, and and we're going to make sure that that example is made and, and the conviction stands. And Turchin is then takes off his uniform, puts on civilian clothes, and, and takes a week hopping trains to get back to Chicago. And what does he find when he gets to Chicago? <laughs> uh, what a wonderful thing. He finds 20 miles outside of Chicago a welcome committee of all the, the well, I can't say all, but uh, it's a very large delegation of very prominent citizens of Chicago who come to escort him the rest of the way home. And he gets home, uh, is uh, uh, taken uh, uh, the equivalent of an 1862 ticker tape parade through the city, He's taken to a great uh, hall where he uh, he's preceded by a large number of speakers who drum up the, the standing room only crowd, and then he's allowed to to speak. And his his, his speech is uh, you know ends with a, with a comment I think you know that uh, if he's he, he can only figure that he was uh, cashiered for for fighting the war the way he thought it ought to be fought. And the crowd explodes in applause, uh, standing ovations. And, and his uh, wife at that time is asked to stand up, and she has in her hand his commission as a brigadier general. And that uh, just makes the crowd ecstatic, that uh, instead of being uh, being at home, he's going to go back to the war as a general. So uh, clearly in Washington there's sentiment among the senators who approve that that commission and Lincoln, uh, who would, would sign it, that uh, <clears throat> the Turchin's style of fighting, uh, the, the non-conciliatory policy, is the new policy. Oh, absolutely, and that, that's what I think makes him such a fascinating person. I said it rides the crest of the wave right at the time, <laughs> right at the time of this wave crest, and which is in June and July of 1862. It's it's about a week before he's the charges are filed that he is nominated by the governor of. of Illinois, or through through his offices, uh, to pr- for promotion to brigadier, and the debate going on in Congress and in Washington at that time is, you know, what how do we what do we do how do, how do we handle the war and and the real swing thing as as Mark Grimsley points out is the defeat of McClellan, which happens uh, the first two or three days of July, when he starts withdrawing down the down the peninsula, and that's right in the middle of Turchin's debate. 
and the charges come to light. Uh, a colonel under Buell's command comes to Washington to make sure they come to light. Uh, Jesse Norton, he, he's run out of town on a rail, essentially for leaving his post. And by a very close vote, it, it, it's, it's quite clear it must have been engineered and, and people were leading. Uh, you know, there was an organized forefight to, to get the, the votes marshaled around uh, for Turson's support. And it is a, is a close vote. It's, you know, the, 18 to 16 or something like that. Uh, uh, but Turchin gets it. He, he gets the promotion, and thereby and shows the swing of support to to the harsh war policy that, that's going to come with it. I mentioned in the one of the introductory moments earlier in the show that uh, at least one author, well, that would be me actually, has referred to Athens as the the me lie of the war, in the sense. When I wrote that, I, I, my <clears throat> my argument was that it was symbolic. Uh, it helped change public attitudes, or it caught a moment of public attitudes. In this case, in a different direction, whereas Milai caused Americans to become uh, more anti-war during Vietnam. Uh, Athens caused Northern uh, Americans to become more uh, willing to, to support a vigorous uh, war. Uh, yes. Do you, do you see that as a valid analogy? Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I certainly, certainly think it is in, in that light. Of course, there's no, no analogy at all regarding the, the extent of the atrocities that, that occurred. But as far as as a, as a swing point for for northern uh, support of, of a harsh war policy, yeah, and yeah, you know, my question would be, of course, I think in a large portion of the populace at home. That had always been their thought, that they did uh, support a harsher war than, than had been fought thus far. And I think, you know, it's, it, it, I, further discussion of Milai is, you see, read in all the papers, you know, yeah, we're going to burn their fields, we'll burn their towns, uh, we'll, we'll destroy their armies. But there's never a call for making war on the civilian population. And it, that's not what happened. Uh, you know that standard, that, that community standard, is also respected. You know, the, the, even Sherman's march, you know, when when this policy is really put into effect uh, two years later, uh, is not a war. You know, it's a war against the industrial capacity. It's a war against transportation systems and government buildings and things. But you know, it's not exterminate men, women, and children, civilians in the south. It's, and, and that is a very, very substantial difference, certainly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it's a fascinating subject. Um, uh, I've, I've researched and written a little bit about the, the the growth of the hard war sentiment among the soldiers of the Army of the Ohio, and uh, I think they certainly saw the Athens as a significant event that helped crystallize their opposition to General Buell and, and the conciliatory policy. And uh, your book really makes clear uh, in detail how that came about and, and has all kinds of interesting uh, bits in it. Well, as always happens each week, we get too quickly to the end of our time. Um, <clears throat> so I want to thank you, George, for being on the show. Uh, well, I really appreciate the, the opportunity to do so, Jerry. And, uh, listeners, you'll want to great take a look at From Conciliation to Conquest, the Sack of Athens and the Court Martial of Colonel John B. Turchin. And I want to thank you and our guests for putting up with my harsh sounds today. I hope to be all better next week. 
and I can join you once again on Civil War Talk Radio. You are listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk.